We are going to study the book of Romans this semester. Now, some of you may know that it has um, more chapters than we can possibly cover in a semester. We really are going to go through the first eight chapters. Um, tonight, we're going to do the first half of chapter one. Now, here's what I want to want to say, and this has something to do with even why we're doing the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. The letter to the Romans was written in about A.D. 57, A.D. 57, and um, that's about 25 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, right? So it's pretty early in the Christian movement. And one of the, the reasons that that's important is because we really want to get at what was the message that changed the world in the first three centuries? There is no doubt that the Christian movement was remarkable in so many ways. Um, there's a guy, Larry Hurtado, who unfortunately died just a couple years ago. Um, he is, was a professor at the University of Edinburgh, um, set up the Institute for the uh, Origins of Christianity there, um, church historian, New Testament scholar. He, he wrote this book with a, a catchy title, quote unquote, a kind of title that only a scholar you know, would come up with. Why on earth did anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries? That's the title. Um, but it's actually an amazing book. It's a great little book. And, and here's what he's, what he's getting at in this book. Uh, there, there were 10,000 Christians as best we can tell, in A.D. 100. So a good 60, 70 years after Jesus was crucified, um, there were 10,000 Christians, which is remarkable. But by 300 A.D., 200 years ago, the best estimates put the number of Christians at 6 million. And yes, I know that Constantine, you know, uh, becoming a Christian emperor, you know, had an impact, but we're talking about before all that. This growth from 10,000 to 6 million was while Christians were being persecuted and while there was no actual benefit to becoming a Christian financially, socially, politically. In fact, it probably made your life more difficult in virtually every way to become a Christian and could even lead to death or at the very least being ostracized by your family, your community, um, whatever guild you were part of. Um, it was a really big deal to not worship the local gods and you were seen uh, as a real threat to society. Now, what Hurtado is asking is why? If that's true, why would anybody become a Christian in this context? And you might say, well, Islam grew this fast, yes, but mostly by conquest. Christianity grew while it was being persecuted and while it gave people no benefit and, in fact, um, made their life more difficult in every way. Now, he goes through a number of different things. I won't get into all this, though it's a fascinating book to read. Um, but but he, he, he talks about this, that Christianity was unique in a couple of ways, uh, with regard to this growth, right? Because the growth of Christianity was not limited to one culture, like other fast-spreading religions had been. It wasn't limited to one socioeconomic group. Uh, it spread to men and women, slaves and masters, right? Every social class. 
And while the way that Christians live their life was certainly a big factor, it was really the unique beliefs of Christianity that gave birth to the countercultural way that Christians lived. Now, I, I think this is important. You see, there were many things that we take grant for granted in the modern world that actually were gifts to the world from Christianity. The first uh, person to ever enact a law saying that you didn't have to provide sex on demand to people who are in a higher class than you was a Christian Roman Empire in the emperor in the third or fourth century. Um, the idea that you could choose your own religion, the idea that all people were made in God's image and worthy of respect and life. These were all not assumptions before Christianity came onto the world scene. So, you know, Hurtado is asking, what was it that made Christianity so powerful and attractive in light of the cost that there was for someone who would convert to Christianity? And he basically says there are two beliefs radically different from anything in the Greco-Roman world. Two beliefs that really turn the world upside down. And, And this is important because in the book of Romans, we get the longest explanation of these two beliefs that you will find in the Bible. It is the longest exclamation, explanation of what the Christians call the good news, the gospel, that we find in the New Testament. And what are these two important beliefs? The first is this, the teaching that the true God was all-powerful, not just one of many gods, but the true God. And, it's important, he was loving and desired even commanded a loving relationship with his people. Oh, there were ideas about different gods that might be merciful if you could kind of butter them up through sacrifices or various things. But the idea that the one true sovereign God was loving and wanted actively to have a loving relationship with his people, there was nothing like that in the ancient world. The second life-transforming belief of Christianity was the assurance of salvation that could be yours through having a relationship with this God, a relationship that was established by grace. So the idea that there's a true God who loves his people and that the way that you can have a relationship with this God, a solid, secure relationship that you could count on no matter what, was established by grace. And I would submit to you that the letter of Paul to the Romans, again, 25 years after Jesus was crucified, is one of the best ways to understand this teaching about grace that transformed the world. Romans, as I said, is the most detailed explanation of the heart of the Christian message, the good news of the message of grace. And it turned the world upside down in those first three centuries. But if we jump ahead 15 centuries to the 1500s, the 16th century, 
it's the teaching in Romans again that is at the heart of what transformed the Western world in the movement we call the Reformation. You see, it's here in Romans chapter 1, the verse that Luther wrestled with and argued with in his heart until he finally understood it. It was like the light broke open and the world was transformed once again. So let me read this and then we're going to dig into this uh, introduction to Paul's letter to the Romans. If you have uh, the link on your Dropbox or if you have a Bible on your phone, I'm reading chapter 1 of Romans verses 1 through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. He wants to come to Rome. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Lord, we do ask that you would bless not only the preaching, but even the reading and the hearing of your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I was saying, this message of grace that Paul is talking about here, that's grabbed him, that's interrupted and redirected his entire life, really is recaptured again at the Reformation in the 1500s. As Paul wrestles with this idea, the gospel, which literally that Greek word means good news. And as Martin Luther is reading this, He's reading it in a context where the gospel of grace has really become obscured. Uh, We know that at the time, right before the Reformation, there was one dominant metaphor 
that, that really controlled how people thought about Jesus. If you asked them, or if you did like a word association kind of game with them, and you said, Jesus, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? I don't know what it is for y'all, but I doubt it's the same as what it was for people in the 16th century. In the 16th century, if you said Jesus, the thing that popped in everybody's mind was judge. One day, we will have to appear before the judgment throne of Christ. It was the message in all the passion plays, these like traveling troops that would go around trying to raise money, selling indulgences, scaring people to death. Um, it was the dominant metaphor in all the sermons, in the woodcuts, in the art, in the songs, whatnot. When the Reformation happens and people begin to read the Bible in their own language, which is one of the most important things that led to the Reformation, people actually reading the Bible and seeing what it said for themselves, there's an explosion of metaphors. One of my favorite books is a book called The Imaginative World of the Reformation. And church historian Peter Matheson says, when your metaphors change, your world changes with them. If you think that God, the primary way he relates to his people is a judge, or kind of like Santa Claus, you know, checking his list twice, seeing who's naughty and nice. If that's the way you think of God, it, it will never lead to the kind of transformation that happened in the first three centuries or again at the Reformation. And what was driving Luther crazy, what he couldn't figure out is, how can Paul in verse 16 say that the, he's not ashamed of the gospel which is good news. He knew that. He, he, he was a professor uh, in the seminary. He understood Greek and Hebrew very well. And he was wrestling with this gospel, good news, verse 16. But in verse 17, says, For in the gospel, in the good news, a righteousness from God is revealed. And those words, he thought, how in the world can it be that God's righteousness being revealed could be good news? That's actually the worst possible news. The righteousness of God shows us how bankrupt our own life and our own morals are. The righteousness of God being revealed is the worst possible news. Oh, you might could go on living as long as you don't think about the righteousness of God, or it's not ever like in your face. But for the righteousness of God to be revealed is the worst possible news. And Luther wrestled and wrestled and wrestled till he finally understood, whoa, wait a second. From God, a righteousness from God, not of God, is revealed. What Paul is saying is that righteousness comes to us as a gift of grace secured by the work of Christ. And everything changed. Then he understood what Paul meant by calling this good news, right? The true message that God is a God of grace and his work brings salvation from judgment and assurance of eternal life transformed the world once again. It is worth pointing out when you think about, and, and I don't want to get into like different doctrinal disputes, um, but the Catholic Church, about 30 years after Luther made this rediscovery of grace, at the Council of Trent in the 1540s, said that assurance of salvation is a Protestant heresy. Now that's significant because it helps you understand that the idea that grace 
could make you secure and not living in fear all the time when you think about God was something that the church authorities at that time did not want to be taught. And they said it was Protestant heresy. But it's this gospel of grace that secures us in the love of God that transformed the world in Paul's day and transformed it again at the Reformation. And it's what we need. It's what we need tonight and tomorrow and next week and the week after that, right? So the time that we have left, what do we, what do we see here in this passage about this message of grace that as we begin to enter into looking at this, um, this topic this semester? Uh, the first thing I want you to notice, I, I love this little phrase, um, the set apart for the gospel of God. Now, maybe some of you have read a lot of the Bible, and you might be like, oh, that's kind of an unusual way to put that, the gospel of God. Usually, it's the gospel of Jesus or the gospel of Christ. What is Paul saying when he says the gospel of God? Well, I think he's talking about is that it's God's gospel. He's the one that did what needed to be done, but it's also his gospel in the sense that we're not free to change it, or adapt it to suit the mood of the day. And the reason I I lean toward that understanding is because later he talks about how he's not ashamed of the gospel. And we're going to talk about that a little little later tonight. He's not ashamed of the gospel, but even if he was ashamed of the gospel, he can't change it. He can't alter it. He can't adapt it. It's God's gospel, right? It's God's idea. It's about what God did and will do that is good news. And as I said, looking at verse 17, it's the righteousness from God revealed. That's the heart of the gospel. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about that tonight because when we get to chapter 3, Paul expands on this, and I think that'll be really helpful. But let me just say this. What makes the gospel, the good news, unique, and what makes it actually good news and not just news is that rather than telling us what we need to do to become righteous for God, the gospel tells us about a righteousness that God gives to us. And that may not strike you as revolutionary because a lot of you have grown up in church and you've heard this kind of thing. But let me, let me quote Tim Keller trying to help us understand what this meant, um, especially in the first century. This, that the gospel gives us righteousness rather than requiring us to give to God our righteousness. This, he says, is a complete reversal of both A, the natural tendency of the human heart, and B, the universal thrust of all other religions. And notice this, he says, everyone else thinks of salvation as providing a righteousness to God, while the gospel says salvation is receiving a righteousness from God. This is what has been revealed. And what's interesting is Paul says, this has been revealed. Look at verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son. So his son is at the heart of the gospel, right? And his son is at the heart of the Scriptures, So Paul is saying, this gospel is not some new thing that I made up. It's not some invention of Jesus at his incarnation. This is the gospel that was promised 
all through the scriptures, and it is the gospel that the scriptures testify to. Right? That's what he's saying here. It's about, it's, it's about righteousness from God revealed. Now, let me just say this. Righteousness is not the same thing as forgiveness. And, and if you've been raised in church, you really need to perk up here. Because this is one of the most misunderstood things, and it's the thing that makes so many Christians worse off psychologically than people who've never been raised in church. If you don't understand the difference between forgiveness and righteousness, um, then you will never be set free and have the security that the gospel of grace is designed to give you. What is righteousness? And what is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness means that you've been forgiven for what you did or didn't do. It doesn't do anything about your future from that point forward. It just deals with the past. Everything up until the moment in which forgiveness is granted is dealt with, but it doesn't do anything for your future. In other words, it gives you a clean slate to try again. Now, if, if what we did in our lives was just screw up, then maybe that would be okay. But if, as Romans is going to say, especially when we get to chapter 3, um, you know, there's no one who seeks God, no one who understands, no one who is righteous, then we need a whole lot more than a clean slate. It was like a, a friend of mine one time, you know, was, was talking and I was like, you know, I'm talking to people that are hearing you talk and they think that what you're saying is you just need to turn over a new leaf. And I've got all these high school boys in my cabin and, and you know, I was, it was at a, a youth camp and I'm like, you know, they're not getting it. And he goes, well, I guess it is kind of like turning over a new leaf. But the problem is, you know, it's like turning over a new leaf in a compost pile. You know, you can stick your pitchfork in the bottom of the pile and turn over a new leaf, but all you have are rotten leaves. Like, you can't just pick it up from the point of being forgiven and just, you know, carry on and everything's fine, right? So we do get forgiveness in the gospel, but that's not the same thing as righteousness. In, in, in the, the gospel, we actually get the status that Jesus earned by perfectly loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't merely get a clean slate and another chance to try to secure God's love. We don't get another opportunity to sort of rededicate our rededications over and over and over again. And maybe some of you have grown up in those kind of settings where like the subtext is, okay, you know, I, I gave my life to Jesus and asked forgiveness and here I am a year later and I'm back at this camp and I need to do this again, you know, and I'm really going to meet it this time and we're really going to hope that, that it'll stick this time when we get back home. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of the good news that is the gospel. We get the status that Jesus earned. We get his perfect record and that's what sets us free. But here's what's interesting. This is something that is shameful in the world's eyes. Like Paul, in proclaiming this gospel of grace, has to proclaim in verse 16 that he's not ashamed of this gospel. And you might think, what? Like, why would the gospel be shameful in the eyes of anybody? 
Well, it's because the gospel is actually insulting. It's bad news before it's good news. Because what the gospel says is you needed God to do everything. You can't earn his love. You can only receive it by faith as a free gift. And you were such a traitor to God that Jesus had to die in your place. If you're ever tempted to think all you needed was a little correction or a little slap on the wrist, you deserve death in hell. Well, that is a little offensive, isn't it? <laughs> and, and particularly it was offensive in the first century because you had two groups that had very different ideas about what was wrong with the gospel. You had the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman world really lived for and worshipped power. And how in the world could a guy who was crucified as a criminal be somebody that you should revere and redirect your life around? So for the Romans, the gospel was shameful because it was about someone who had been crucified as a petty criminal. For the Jews, they understood what it said in the book of Deuteronomy, one of the Old Testament books that was very important. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And they understood in the first century that crucifixion was what Deuteronomy was talking about. And so, if you were crucified, that proved that you were cursed by God. Now, Paul is going to pick up on this and say, yes, Jesus was cursed by God. But the reason that's good news is he was cursed in our place. And that changes everything. So the gospel, Paul says, is something that can be seen as shameful in the world's eyes. And there are, I would say, even today, a lot of quote-unquote pseudo-gospels that have no potential for embarrassing you in the world's eyes. In fact, one of the true tests of the gospel, whether it's really the gospel, is, is it seen as shameful in the world's eyes? You see, a gospel that says, go ahead and believe what you want, as long as you're sincere, that won't make you ashamed in the world's eyes. No one will ever call you narrow-minded. But being called narrow-minded because you believe the actual gospel, shame, it's shameful. A gospel that says, go ahead and live how you want, will never make you ashamed. No one will ever call you a Puritan or legalistic, right? A gospel that says, do your best, because God gives A's for effort, will never make you ashamed, because everybody believes that we should get what we work for. But a gospel that says, even your most selfless acts are like filthy rags in God's sight, a gospel that says nothing short of substituting an innocent man in your place to cover your sin, that's something that is shameful, it sounds absurd, and maybe worse, it sounds old-fashioned, right? But the good news, Paul says, is that Jesus was crucified and demonstrated, declared to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. In other words, the good news is that there was a bloody cross and an empty tomb, and Paul is unashamed about this because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone. And this message changes everything, beginning with those 
who believe it. Look in verse 1. Paul says, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. You see, the gospel interrupts and redirects. And, 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 you know, if you're thinking, if you're playing along at home and you're thinking about, okay, do I really get the gospel? That's one of the questions. Has it ever made you feel embarrassed or ashamed? And has it ever interrupted you and redirected you? Uh, a little later here in verse um, 5, Paul says this, through him, meaning Jesus, and for his name's sake, so now his name and his glory, like we sang in that song about Christ being magnified, like his glory is now the thing that Paul lives for. So he's been redirected, if you will. He says, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. I love that little phrase, the obedience that comes from faith. You see, when the gospel comes, it changes everything, beginning with those who believe it. True obedience is not serving God so that he will like you or keep liking you. It's responding to the embrace of God that we didn't deserve. True obedience, Paul says here, flows from faith, not as an attempt to secure the love of God. And if you've ever been in a relationship where you're unsure of what the other person thinks about you, you know that what does that do? It makes you incredibly self-conscious, morbidly introspective. And for some of you, that's the way you relate to God. We need to understand the gospel of grace. It should not make us morbidly introspective and insecure, always wondering if we've done enough, if we felt enough. The gospel of grace should set us free from that. Well, last, last point, who needs to hear this? And the answer is everyone, everyone. Now, if you've grown up in church, you've probably been fed one of the biggest lies that there is, which is that the gospel is what you need to become a Christian. But what Paul is showing us here is the gospel is for everyone. I think one of the greatest tragedies of modern Christianity is the gospel has been reduced to being thought of merely as the instructions for how you can become a Christian rather than the world-transforming message that it really is. The good news is not just for becoming a Christian. He says here that the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Faith in what? Just faith that like tomorrow will be better than today? No. Faith always has an object in the Bible. Faith is not just some temperament that some kind of religious people have where they just tend to see the glass half full instead of half empty. No, faith in the Bible is always faith in something. It's faith in what Jesus did. It's trusting his record rather than your record. As that hymn that we sing sometimes by Horatius Bonar says, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die. I stake my whole eternity. That's what it means. The righteousness, the righteous live by faith. And this is what Christians need, right? Too many Christians, I think, live miserable lives, feeling like they completely, continually disappoint God. But that's not living by faith in what Christ has done, 
It's living by faith in what you've done, or at least what you hoped or wished you had done. That will never set you free. But notice here, Paul says that he's writing this longest explanation of the gospel that we have in the entire New Testament. Who's he writing it to? Look at this. I love this in verse 8. He's writing it to people who are literally world famous for their faith. Look at that. Your faith is being reported all over the world. So people who are world famous for their faith need the longest explanation of the gospel that there is in the entire New Testament. If that doesn't tell you something, I don't know what does. It means that all of us need this transforming truth over and over and over again. We never outgrow our need for it. As Martin Luther said, we need the gospel beaten in their heads every day because we leak. We keep forgetting the true basis upon which we can have hope, what Jesus has done, living and dying in our place, and we begin to think that what God thinks about us is based upon how well we did with what he's given us. It's not true. It's not true. But Romans is also great for those who want to explore what Christianity is all about. Um, I know that there are people uh, in RUF who are raised in church but wondering if what they've been taught was really true or right. And then there's people that haven't really been raised in church and they're like trying to figure out what is this Christianity thing, right? Some of you have had your world rocked this year from religion classes or from friends who believe things radically different from you. And you wonder, what is Christianity and the Bible really all about? Well, Romans is a great book for you as well. Because Romans says, look, this is what was announced promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. You want to know what the whole Bible is about? Romans is going to tell you. Romans is going to tell you. And and I'll say just no extra charge. If you want another book that helps, you need to figure out what makes people mad. You want to really know what somebody really believes. What really matters is what makes them mad. That's why I also love the the letter of Paul to the Galatians, because it's the angriest letter, and it's worth seeing what is it that makes him so angry. And you know what it is? It's teachers who've come along to Christians and told them that God's grace is not enough, that they also need to measure up by the way they live to secure the love of God. And Paul is ticked. So if you want to know, you know, a lot of people are like, well, some Christians believe this and some believe that, and who can really even know what the first century believed? You can know what the early Christians believed, The Gospel of Romans is really clear and detailed. And if you're not sure about that, you can go see what paid Paul really ticked off and what really, really mattered over in Galatians. And they're saying the same thing. The Gospel of grace is everything.